This device isn't a spaceship. It's a time machine. Goes backwards, forwards. Takes us to a place yeah. where we ache so, to go again. You were just on Kashuda recently. Was that, was that this January? No, that was actually quite a long time ago. Uh, it's uh, not called that the was wheel. recorded almost seven or eight months ago. It was in June. It's called the carousel. Uh, it was June. Yeah, it was a really, really long time. I mean, to, to such a point that I thought the episode had gotten scrapped. It's like, I didn't think I did that bad. You know, but it just like disappeared into the ether. I mean, she was out for you know, maternity leave, so I'm not blaming her for it. It's just funny. But uh, yeah, that's dissident right maternity leave. Yeah, pretty much. Right. It, it is interesting. Like I'm newer to this and I'm especially new to being a guest. I'm quite used to hosting people. It's a very different skill set. And so in the six months between talking to Alex and, you know, now or whatever, whenever it released, uh, I got significantly better at the skill of being interviewed. You know, it takes some practice. And so looking back, you know, there's, and it's like anything, you know, you look back at your own work and you're like, okay, I probably could have handled that better, but it was a fun conversation. And, you know, people seem to have, have gotten something from it, but yeah, I, I did speak to Alex. Geez, that was a while ago. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, what, so what do you think of her? I mean, I, it's funny that you say that about being interviewed, but how I'm also trying to get better at uh, podcasting. I, I don't think I'm very good at it. And, you know, I've been doing, I'm almost at a hundred episodes, so I should be good at it by now. Um, but I really put the effort into the writing, not, not the mm. podcasting. So w what would you say, but I am noticing there's certain things that make for a good podcast. So what would you say is the key to being interviewed? Well, the thing is with being interviewed, that's, that is different, right? Is that a two person interview show is sort of a dance, you know, if you pardon my pretentious analogy, you know, and if you're used to being, on one hand, you know, the interviewer is kind of leading the discussion, but they're also taking a backseat role. You know, they're, they're sort of heading, hedging off, you know, uh, kind of like conversations that spin off, you know, pointing it in a direction, kind of keeping it on topic, which is one of those things that if you're doing right, no one really notices it. You know, there's no kind of harsh, you know, cut off to an idea. You know, we explore things that are kind of radical or like national or not rationally, neither radical nor national is what I meant, come up. Uh, and so that's, it requires you to kind of plan forward in a different way than if you're being interviewed, at least how I do it, you know, like, oh, this connects to this. And so at least how I like to do it is the same way I try to write and speak and do everything, which is I want it all to have a, like a, a thesis or a solid idea running through it, you know, so it isn't just even though it has the appearance of, you know, kind of a casual conversation, there's a specific there's question a being addressed, right? Yeah. I'm a big structure guy. Uh, and so it's interesting because, you know, you and I are kind of coming at this from different directions because I'm a podcaster first branching into to writing. And so my, my thought process behind both is pretty much the same, which is there's, there's some part of it that's an art, but there's a whole, there's a whole lot of it. That's a skill, you know, and you're at, at a certain point, you're a journeyman. And so it's just, the way I look at it, and it's part of the reason I put out so much content is I'm getting reps in, you know? And so, you know, maybe there's a hyper intellectual way to do it, but my thought is always just like, well, just do it until I get good at it, I guess. Right. But what, but substantively, what, I mean, like, what do you notice? 
Like as a, you said that that makes sense as an interviewer, right? What you just said in terms of making it have a structure, making it have a flow. Although I don't even know if that's really true, to be honest, man. I mean, like, look at the best, look at the shows that have the the biggest followings. Like, there's no structure to Rogan, that's for sure. Like, there, I feel like it's kind of like pod, like really successful podcasts are sort of like anti-structure in a way, aren't they? Well, yes and no, because within that, you know, when people think of, and I'm, I'm not super up to date on, on Rogan. There's a period in my life where I listen to a lot of him, nothing against the guy, right? Just not kind of something I'm, I'm super up to date on. Right. But, you know, I think of times like that, that famous, like Alex Jones returns episode, you know, where, you know, Jones my favorite piece of audio of all time. Oh, same. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's, it's masterful, but you know, that, that is on one hand, you know, it's interesting because it is kind of like chaotic and, and there's no plan in it, but it is interesting because it is something as part of a, of a wider arc, if that makes sense. Like that isn't just a conversation, you know, it, it's kind of significant because it takes place, you know, within a context of being kind of after Jones canceling, you know, is he or is he not going to be allowed back on? And I also think that there's a, there, there's kind of a different thing with that. You know, that like, obviously Rogan does ideas podcasts with ideas people, you know, and then there are others, which is kind of like a, a variety hour. And both of those are fine, but I think that it's the same format used to a different end, if that makes sense. Now, again, I'm not trying to be overly pretentious about, you know, what we do with this. It's just kind of my thoughts off the top of my head. Well, but what is this? I mean, like, I don't know. It's to me, like, I think that when I started it, I was being too structured. I was like trying to like, oh, you know, I did a lot of research on everybody and I, you know, um, yeah, like I really wanted to answer really specific questions. And then I kind of realized like, eh, it's sort of exhausting. Like, I, you know, I was listening to you on Kashuda and I was like, I don't want to do those kinds of podcasts anymore. Hmm. And I don't think you do those kinds, by the way. Yeah, I, I'm not saying that you do this. Like you actually seem like, you really have with your guests, like something really specific to chew on with them, which I think is great. And I think that that's a good way to do it. Whereas Kashuda, it's like, it's just exhausting. You know what I mean? It's like, it's, it's like, okay. It's always just, there's so much, uh, there's so much like small talk and then there's so much ass kissing and there's so much like figuring out who the person is in a way it's great because it's like Kashuda is awesome because if you ever want to know who somebody is like in a kind of fundamental boiled down way you should listen to Kashuda because it's like then you'll understand like the basics of who that person is and at first I thought that that's what I wanted this to be because that's kind of where my curiosity lies right like somebody like you comes along you're a very typical example where your name's like in the air, right? Hmm. It's like well, it I'm helps that I've talked it, to everyone. What? What? <laughs> it says that it helps that I've talked to basically everyone. You know, yeah. yeah. I, like whatever that you know, whenever the next time that some like underpaid uh, Guardian journalist gets uh you know gets assigned to like map out the who's talked to who lines, <laughs> I, I get some kind of satisfaction that they'll at least have to spend like a week on me, you know, yeah. anyway, that's, but so, sorry, your point saying like, you're so a through, you're a through threat. You're a mm -hmm. through threat. Well, no, it's like, I just see the name around. So it's like, I see this name, Jay Burden and it's around. And then 
you start to dig into the person, but then it's, there's never really with like so many people. And I think this is actually a strength of our guys is you're kind of mysterious, right? It's not like you go to some website and it's like, this is who I am. And here's my LinkedIn. And, you know, like, here's my, you know, like a little bio, whereas most people in the whole world have basically that, right? I mean, it's, it's rare to have somebody be mysterious. And we all have these names that are like our rap names, you know, like they're literally like Ice Cube, effectively. And um, so what Kashuta does is it's like she's good because she has that sort of baseline curiosity to figure out, okay, who is who like roughly is this person? Because it's not like there's a bio. It's not like you're not like super. It's not super easy to figure out like what your specialty is. You know what I'm saying? Right, right. I I, I see your point there. So yeah. to go back to what you said about about being interviewed and what's different in that, right? Is that you're sort of it's kind of the roles are reversed because you you, you say that a lot of my shows tend to be more focused on like someone and their idea versus just like kind of like a LinkedIn page. For, yeah, uh, you're, you're right. Business. Yes, you you go in like direct. I just started listening to your, your Eugippus. Oh yeah, Eugippus. Yeah, and this is like what's so funny about our scene because it's like <laughs> the podcast before that one. You have some like total YouTube weirdo out there who's like calling you from his car, Agricola or whatever. Who's had like he's had <laughs> that's like, my friend James. Names. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and he's like a total fucking like crazy person, and you know he's not really talking about anything. And then the next episode you turn on and it's like within the first question, he's like ultra deep into German politics. <laughs> and oh, it's yeah, just definitely. Like so different. Yeah. Well, that's that's why this sphere is fun, you know, is that and and maybe we can get into this later. But like, I think that there's growing up in kind of red America and more conservative spaces, there's this kind of idea that you know, you're not allowed to have any fun. You're not allowed to have interesting conversations. And in order to in be red right America, in red America, yeah, yeah. So red America. I mean, like Republican areas, you know, red America, blue America. Is it, I think it's an idea from Moldbug or someone else. I can't remember. I've stole it. It's not mine. The, the point is, you know, conservative areas, you know, and, and a lot of conservative intellectual culture is either non-existent, you know, it's, it's like killing crazy horse by Bill O'Reilly. You know, yeah, or it's you know, kind of this like weak <laughs> yeah. sauce, like Buckleyite stuff, and it's just not very fun, yeah, or interesting. True, and you sort of get this received wisdom, and it's no one ever says it that essentially, if you're smart, you're a liberal, yeah. And so, if you're a, a, a kid interested in ideas, interested in talking about things, that kind of pushes you towards the left. Yeah. But if you're kind of constitutionally just unable to go there, you're stuck in a very uncomfortable position. Because you're like, oh, I, I really hate liberals, like just yeah. deep in my bones. I don't like them. I don't yeah. get along with them. But also I feel kind of malnourished. You know, it's like weak sauce when I'm with my people. Yeah. And so to have a. I know, you know exactly. Like outlet, I know exactly the feeling that you're that you're talking about. It's like right. when it's like uh, conservatives, it's like there's kind of the it's really fucking true, isn't it? It's like there's this kind of baseline mild like weakness to the conservative conversation. And this is really I mean this is really what Moldbug. The reason why Moldbug is Moldbug and everybody always goes back to him and he's like the daddy of the scene. 
is because he was really the first one to do the work to tell the story of and, and you know again it's different for you because you're coming from the right i'm coming from the deep left mm -hmm. so for me rightism the story i was told is that the leftists were the rebels right and the right-wing people were the they were the winners. They, they they were the ones who were in control. And the left was always, you know, we're the rebel empire. We're rebelling against the empire. And, and we're, oh, every time we have a win, it's against this hegemonic white conservative thing. And for me, what Moldbug did is reverse that. He he did the red pill is no, no. It's the opposite. Like it, the, the hegemonically powerful empire is the left. And the right is this little scrappy poorly funded kind of a failing loser thing right and that's that's the truth but for you on the other side it's like i think the the mold bug red pill is like something along the lines of yeah your shit's just boring it's like boring and uninteresting and it doesn't inspire people and it doesn't capture people. And it, it just leaves you feeling as you just perfectly said, kind of like, like unsatisfied. Well, well right. And when I, I say that, I mean something very specifically. I think that the conservative instinct is a natural one. I say this as a right winger, you know, and I think that in many cases, these people are not really responsible for the ideas that they're they're talking about. You know, they're 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 again received wisdom. But the thing is, the American conservative movement is is fake. It's not a real thing. Yeah. Because right. That's I hate fine. to say it, and as much as I, you know, love my country, there really wasn't a right wing in America until about a hundred years ago. It was basically competing camps of progressives with different ideas on how to achieve progress. And Wait, you, know, you see this what progressives uh, competing camps of progressives oh, with it. different ideas on how to achieve social progress. And I mean, this is very clear in the post, you know, antebellum years where essentially it was just, you know, which flavor of, of Republican were you? But, you know, even once we get into kind of the, uh, you know, the, the early 20th century, the biggest disagreement is basically on kind of like relatively heady economic issues. You know, the, the culture is very much unified. And then the American conservative movement springs out of essentially the opposition to FDR. It's called the old right. This is figures like Garrett Garrett, you know, who, who basically were these kind of what we would see as now as like classical liberals who were genuinely affronted by, you know, the American Caesar that is FDR, you know, who did things as insane as basically say like all of the gold in America is mine, which is like people... Don't really remember that, you know, like crazy libertarian gold bugs do, but it's kind of a power move basically saying like, I own all of the metal in the You're country. You're talking about FDR. Yeah, yeah FDR. So what, what, you know, I know that many people on our side go back to FDR as the original, uh, you know, it's basically Stalin. <laughs> you know, he, yeah, he's the, the moment the in which America becomes essentially like a communist project, you know, and some people date it back to Civil Rights Act. That's the... Caldwell group. And then there's, I think, Moldbug. And those people say, oh, it's really FDR who socialized the country. So what do you, but I don't, I have no idea what you're talking about with this gold, the, all the metals thing. So what oh, this is, sorry, this is just an example. Uh, essentially part of FDR's 
reconstructing of America is he changed how money worked. You know, before there was a literal gold standard where you could, you know, walk into a bank and say, give me my gold. You know, I give you $10. Yes, right. He modified that deal because he wanted to deliberately devalue the currency uh, to basically accomplish his economic ends. And so what he basically said is, hey, I'll take all the gold and hold it for you, including like if you have gold bullion in your house, you have to give it to me. Uh, and at some indefinite point in the future, you can exchange it. This is also interesting because this is sort of what happened during World War II as well. Like it's why Fort Knox has so much gold in it is that we took the gold reserves of the French, the English, and basically said, we'll hold on to it for you guys. Uh, this is much later down the line. But the only reason I bring this up is to say that he did things that would be the people don't remember that are not out of step for a dictator, right? Doing things like saying, I own all the gold in America. Sorry, that was not a relevant point, but just to say, this is what the people who were strongly anti-FDR were reacting to. And so the, the genesis of that old right movement, which became the American conservative movement with there's some steps in between, uh, was basically entirely focused on, on economics. Because even during FDR, and there, don't get me wrong, there was a strong, I guess you would call it like uh, social planning kind of, I guess, way of looking that a lot of the, the kind of like progressives at the time had. You know, they wanted to sort of engineer problems out of existence. Uh, interestingly enough, a lot of pro early progressives were eugenicists for this reason. But the, the kind of social conservatism doesn't really get lumped in until a little bit later. And it was never really a comfortable bedfellow. You know, you have the, the neoconservatives, right, who were kind of ex-Trotskyists. And, you know, this is obviously 30 years after FDR, a little bit later even. Uh, but, you know, those were very much that same attitude of like, oh, well, economics is all that matters. And, you know, some rural voters care about this kind of more like baseline civilizational stuff. And so my point in saying all of this is that the American right is kind of a fake thing. You know, it's not real in the same way that you know you can track a, you know, an evolution of thought over, you know, a long period of time. It's essentially kind of this vestigial thing of the American empire. And so that's why I think there's not really a great intellectual tradition. And don't get me wrong, there are American right wingers and there always have been. But essentially once you get good enough, you become illegal, you know, and we've seen this with the American conservatives, like people like Sam Francis were kicked out by prominent conservative Dinesh D'Souza, canceled, lost his job. He was working at the National. Wait, 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 wait. Okay. I know who Dinesh D'Souza is. What are you saying? Who's Sam Francis? Oh, so Sam Francis is a, is a seminal right-wing author. Uh, he has a, he has a bunch of great essays, including, have you ever heard the term anarcho-tyranny? Yeah, I guess. That's Sam Francis. Essentially, that's the idea that, and not to get too much into the, like nuts and bolts politics stuff, because I realize it could be boring, but anarcho-tyranny is this idea that it's actually kind of scary and dangerous to go after criminals, like dangerous criminals. And because of kind of the structure of our state, uh, dangerous criminals and their families are the clients of the state. And so you have this police apparatus, and so it makes way more sense for them to focus on basically terrorizing normal people, you know? So like, oh, you know, you were going, you know, in my state, if you go 20 over, it's reckless driving, you know, they can throw you in jail for it. And it was like, is that, is that really the same thing as like the guy on my street corner who sells crack? 
Like, no, but what do the police care about? Sorry, that's the point is Sam Francis is a seminal right-wing author. He wrote this. He has a great essay on MLK uh, written shortly after Reagan uh, made a national holiday. Uh, I can't remember the exact name. But you can find it, just Sam Francis MLK. So great essayist. And he was actually working at the National Review, you know, Buckley's paper. And over and over and over again, we've seen people who are interesting right-wing idea people, you know, people like Sam Francis. And what happens is they get canceled from the right by these kind of like fake conservatives like Dinesh D'Souza, you know, who is more than willing to tell so you about Dinesh like- Why did Dinesh D'Souza cancel this guy? Uh, for racism, but essentially left, it was cancel culture. You know, it was, and let's also be honest, Dinesh D'Souza wanted to be the guy who was cleaning up the right, you know? But, and so my point is not to just reiterate, you know, 30 year old, essentially e-drama, but to say that, you know, there's a reason that this kind of like conservative American culture is so empty and feels so fake. And it's because any, not only is it kind of springing from, you know, shallow soil, uh, but it's also deliberately pruned, you know, and if anything is actually like interesting enough to sink your teeth into, well, that gets memory hold and it's very difficult to find. So sorry, that, that was a long, you know, kind of arc to get us back to back to that point. Right. So, okay. So yeah, I mean, I, I, we're, the, the larger point we're making is that the right, any serious rightism is a loser. Although I don't know. I mean, is, is D'Souza really, I mean, he's pretty far right. I've actually learned a lot from D'Souza. I don't know why we don't like him more. You know, I learned about uh, Saul Alinsky from his book, uh, that which is really a big part of the, everything. And I don't know. I mean, I don't, is, is D'Souza like a bad actor? Is he like a loser or is he, uh, yeah. I mean, is he really that bad? Well, my point is not even necessarily me. to say like, I hate Dinesh D'Souza personally, but to say, <laughs> uh, to say that that same mechanism we see now, you know, where, and it's, it's working less and less as the Overton window shifts, but you have, you know, people on the more kind of, establishment side like Dinesh D'Souza movies run in the theater in my hometown you know like that is not necessarily to say that he is an establishment figure but you know he is a more uh, mainstream figure right have this incentive to attack people to their right to basically claim them as as scalps and to kind of use that to further their own career I see. Mm -hmm. and so yeah. that is you know and I'm not even necessarily saying Sam Francis did this or sorry Dinesh D'Souza did this out of some like preordained malice, Yeah, you know, but in, in the same way that you see, uh, I don't know, like whenever, you know, Shapiro will go after someone or, you know, uh, what's his name? The, the gay one from California, uh, Dave, or Dave Rubin will go after someone. Dave Rubin. Jeez. Yeah. I have, I have opinions there, but. Well, I mean, there's a lot of, there's a lot of LARPers on the right, man. I mean, there's a lot of people like Dave Rubin who are, you know, or got the, you know, Dave Rubin and um, what's her name? Fucking uh, lesbian, Jewish lesbian. Uh, uh, Barry Weiss. Barry Weiss. They're effectively the same thing, right? And it's like, they're, they're basically the same person. And the the question for that I have for people like that is like, does a Dave Rubin or a or a um, Barry Weiss like are they just opportunists 
You know, like, are, are they, the sense I get of Barry Weiss is if no matter what society we were living in, Barry Weiss would be the same person, right? Like, like if we were living in a hegemonically right-wing society, Barry Weiss would be like the questioning, slightly questioning, um, you know, centrist uh, left-wing person. You know what I mean? Like, right, I, right. I feel like that same thing with Dave Rubin. Like, I, I feel like those people are essentially just like, yeah, they're the we ask the questions people. Right. And like, I'm just asking questions here. And and the question that I have about them is, are they like, are they just opportunists? Does Dave Rubin actually believe anything? Does does Barry Weiss actually believe anything that she says, or or is she really just um, an opportunist? You know, is she just did she look at the landscape and be like, well, I can't make it as yet another left wing person, so I'm just gonna try and like take this little path on on the side because there's obviously a road here, you know. Or do they actually believe what they're saying? I mean, and I could ask myself this question. I mean, I, I feel like I'm I'm basically the same as those people, kind of. So I don't know what you think about that. So, uh, and I think that there, there are obviously degrees to this, you know, because I even think of someone like Alex Jones, where it's like, how much of that is a thing so he can make money, you know, and how much of that is his, his kind of true belief? Very different type of person. But there is a, it's, it's a weird blurring of the lines there between what's performance and what's real. And obviously that's very cartoonish, but I think that there is, there is something, and you see this a lot in IDW types in kind of even yeah. more moderate conservatives, which is they have this instinctual realization that something isn't right. You know, like, this is not going well, but I think that the, the solutions are genuinely disturbing to them are scary. And so there's this desire to kind of have it, you know, have your cake and eat it too. And I think that part of that is that, you know, many of these people are or were very high status. Yeah. You know, they're, I think they're, of like the they're definitely types. people who want status very badly. Right. And who care about status. Right. I mean, they, they truly care about status. And I think if you are somebody who cares about status in the United States of America, you pretty much have two choices. Either you just you know pound me daddy like just fucking take you know take me over you know you see these uh you see these like establishment musicians and it's like they start off totally normal and then you know fast forward to their latest album and it's them like you know bent over in a dress <laughs> you know that, that literally right, happened yeah. to like four of them you know like i think like harry styles harry styles is a totally normal guy and then suddenly it's like oh my new album here i am in a dress you know, it's like it, because well, with that's him, it's what, also yeah, it's also the thing that like kids do. Where like if like a six or seven year old kid tells you a joke and you laugh at it, you're like, oh, I got a reaction. I'm gonna tell it again, over and over and over again. You're right, like, exactly. He, he got a reaction from the dress thing, and so he's yeah, like, and he's All like, right, like, oh, I, I'm the I got, dress guy now. <laughs> right, yeah, yeah. I got good feedback on this. Let me just keep it on going. You know, like right, right, right. And, sorry, and you know that happened to that guy who did the the old town road song you know of course he mm -hmm. becomes satanic gay like you know and sam smith this happened to all of them and i think you're right i think it's like breadcrumbs you know they're, they're being rewarded and then they're rewarded and then they're rewarded so they just go like further and further into it so i feel like that's one if you are truly without um 
morals, right? If you if you really don't believe in anything, you should take that path. That's totally the path you should take. And many people are like that. You know, many people just don't, they don't have a moral consciousness at all. They don't think about things that way. And morals to them are, are something that is something you say so that people leave you alone. And in a way, that's the most Nietzschean thing of all, isn't it? You know, I mean, to to say, all right, well, look, the sheep, the sheep need to just be kept over here. I don't want them bothering me. So I'm just going to say whatever I can to make the sheep shut up so I can continue to exert my will and, and gather power. There's something quite, you know, based about those people in a way. I mean, that what I always say is that the most base people I've ever been around are, are, you know, the most not based, but the most like alpha people I've ever been around are bankers and real estate bros. Yeah. And you think they're fucking sitting around talking about, you know, conquest laws like no they don't give a fuck they don't care about ideas at all like the ideas they're, they're not talking about ideas they don't talk about ideas whatsoever the true upper classes have zero interest in like philosophy they don't want to talk about these things you know it's not it never crosses their mind well i think that you know going back to that idea of of seeking status is something i come back to a lot because i think that's a it's just kind of a baseline human trait and, and in in most times and places, those are instincts that serve you well, you know? So like, let, let's go for this kind of like hypothetical caveman society. You know, if you do the thing that makes your tribe like you, you know, like you do something really big, you know, you catch a big animal. I don't know what caveman, eat, right. you know what I mean? Yes. That, that, that is a good thing for you as just a biological organism. Like you are more likely to succeed. And I would argue that kind of in most cases is, is, is true. Like I think like in my, in my hometown, there's a, you know, a large brass statue at the center of now the ghetto, but was once kind of a nice area uh, of a guy who gave up his for-profit medical practice, started a free clinic, right? And they rewarded that guy by giving him a, a giant statue, you know, naming a street after him. And it says the, like the doctor, blah, 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 park, you know, giving him a lot of, of social status because he did something good for society. And obviously that's sort of a, a carrot and stick you use to, to motivate people, particularly kind of, you know, ambitious people who tend to do the most. And really the problem is that, you know, that incentive structure still exists, but just to like genuinely horrible ends, you know, like human, like destructive ends. And so, you know, I think that. Wait, what do you, you know, mean we, that exists to destructive ends though? Yeah. Well, is, currently, are you, yeah. So you're saying society yeah, sorry, is directed towards bad ends. Things that are high status, instead of, you know, kind of promoting general social flourishing, are things that are likely to make you, like, horribly depressed, you know, malformed and miserable, you know? That same instinct that rewarded the last 10 generations of your family line, you know, is one that's sort of killing you. So what do you, explain that a little bit more. What what exactly do you, do you, give me an example. All right. So, uh. I, I live in Virginia. I've made no secret of that. And last uh, governorship, a big upset Republican got in. And so a lot of the kind of upper crust of the state are, you know, these old families who've been involved in politics for a long time. Now, one of the, and I do not remember who this is, it doesn't really matter, but a, a member of, you know, the previous Democratic governor's cabinet right before this upset was running. And he was running, you know, as, as a Democrat in the blue area. And so what he ran with front and center was the fact that his daughter was transitioning and his, you know, 
under 18 minor daughter had gotten the full surgery. He has that up out front and center because that is a high. Wait, he has what? Thing. He has, well, he, he has a daughter who's transitioned yeah, to a male, it. has the full surgery, everything. And she was on all of his campaign posters and his commercials and all that front and center. And you she know. as in looking like a guy. Yes. Sorry. Oh. This is, I'm not, I'm not trying to be in play here. It's just confusing to talk about. Dude, uh, I don't give a fuck, man. I, I hate it. I, there's such <laughs> an awkward, like, I, I'm like, you know, there's plenty of gay people on, on our side. And some of my, you know, good friends are gay. And, you know, we, it's like, whatever. I mean, I'm, I don't hide my beliefs about this stuff, but it's, but it's like, there is even on the right, there's this awkward moment of people who say he and people who say she to describe a trans person. Right. Yes. I'm I'm familiar with that distinction. And it's like, you never, it's like what it's, you know, it's always this like dance of like, and I noticed that a lot of people on the right actually just avoid saying the pronoun for the good one. It's completely because they just don't like deal with it. That's my rule of thumb in person. It's just easier, you know, than trying to get into it uh, online. So what do you do? Do you say he or she? Uh, I I mean, like I go with assigned birth assigned when i say she I'm, i mean a woman who's had yeah, her who is a woman me too my lo- rule is like i'm not fucking i you know i i interviewed like a trans person back when i was a normie i interviewed a trans person mm. and i said she you know it was a he but i said she and i was every time i said she i was like it was like a little like self-hatred like, well, <laughs> like, like, like no you shouldn't say that and so my thing now is like, fuck that, man. No, I'm not. I'm not playing this game. I'm not going to say fucking she. I, I don't care if it's polite. I don't care if it's blah, blah, blah. Like, no, I didn't fucking, you know, blow up my normie career. So then I would go back and have to be shamed into fucking, you know, pretending that this person is a man, you know, or pretending that this person is the other sex than they are, you know? No, certainly. And I think that not to get too moralistic about this, but this is this is interesting enough. Someone who I do not prefer to put it mildly, but in Rod Dreher's book, Live Not By Lies, which is kind of the normal Dreher mix of relatively insightful uh, political analysis, uh, travel log, and then like hand-wringing moralism. He he talks about the kind of like the psychically destructive- Sounds actually kind of good. Eh, kind of. <laughs> there, there's like a 40% it. of a decent book in there. Uh, but he he talks about the, the way that, you know, repeating lies kind of eats at you personally. And he talks about, you know, he uses the example of Soviet uh, Christian dis- di- Christian dissidents behind the Iron Curtain. And he talks about how, you know, for them, like the, the number one, when they were talking about like, you know, Catholic priests who were basically like apostatizing, he's like, yeah, the number one way they would get you is by basically getting you to kind of like slowly repeat lies. And it was yeah. actually the, in yeah. the, and I say they get you, but you can do it to yourself as well. It, it, a lot of the the uh, inspiration for the final act of 1984, you know, where uh, Winston yep. is essentially brainwashing himself, yeah, yeah, uh, was something that Orwell saw and KPD operatives do in Spain. Uh, so there's there is a you know a, a genealogy. Well, there. Then, so just to tell people, the last moment of 1984 is this kind of perfect thing where you know he there's a guy living in an ultra oppressive totalitarian society and he 
um, is being he's questioning. He's got a really cool job because it's like his job is literally to edit, <clears throat> edit the news to make it seem like the regime was right all the time, which is like increasingly a real job <laughs> in our world. But uh, so, you know, he's questioning, he's got, he's got bad, you know, he's got anti-establishment ideas that he, you know, very, very cursorily explore, explores, you know, he's really not a major rebel. He's just kind of curious. And the story is him slowly being ground down by the thought police to genuinely erase his negative beliefs. And the final moment is him truly having his mind reversed and uh, believing in the in the state completely. And but what do you mean that he's doing it to himself in the end? I don't know if I remember that exactly. Well, because if you remember, there's and this is a, a metaphor that really cringe so-called classical liberals love to use on the Internet. But what what uh, it's Winston and who's the guy who does it? Uh, I can't remember the name of his jailer. Basically, what he has him do is he starts off with kind of provably false things, like two plus two is five. Oh, yeah. Two and he basically makes five. him write it for weeks yeah. on end, yeah. which is, again, something that, you know, when uh, Americans were captured during the Korean War, they'd be forced to do similar things yeah. and to kind of brainwash them. And so the reason I bring that up is because that that saying it, is and, that true? Did the Koreans do that? What did oh the yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, this is where uh, this is the the genesis of uh, things like MK Ultra. You know, is that essentially U.S. servicemen were coming back from being POWs in Korea and China, of course, and they basically came back as Maoists. And they're like, "What the hell? Oh. Like, this guy was from Kansas. He was only gone for three months. Like, what were they doing to him?" <laughs> and basically, they wow. reverse engineered. Oh, I didn't realize that. I didn't realize yeah. that's where that came from. Oh, okay, cool. And so, another interesting point in that is that the diversity statement is very similar to something yeah. that the the Maoists would do. Is that oh. they would start off with this kind of like slow deconstruction, where they basically have, and normally they'd start with officers, is that they would have you write an essay. And it would be something really similar or really simple rather, but it would be like, uh, what are name one thing you'd like to fix about America? You know, and you'd say like, oh, like I wish that America had better infrastructure. And then they'd come back, you know, a, a week later and be like, all right, you need to write an essay on, you know, why America is a bad country. And, you know, the, the person would say, like, well, I mean, America's not a bad country. I like it. And they'd be like, well, you, you admit it a week ago you know, that needs better infrastructure. And so my point is not to say I have, you know, a 1950s chauvinist view of America, not, not at all, but to say that that same process of getting you to affirm in their language, like this basic non-reality, it matters way more than just like simple politeness. And I think that in that, you, there's something kind of interesting about the, the psychology of transgender activists which is this like rabid need for affirmation yeah, you're like no 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 you need to believe it you need to think it you need to tell it to me it, and i think some of that is essentially like neil like i want to see you grovel for me and especially when you look into kind of like the weird psychosexual nature to some of this i feel like that has to play a factor but uh the point is that's why i think that that's actually a battle worth fighting uh but what I was going back to what I was saying about the reason I brought up this, this, you know, pre transgender girl 
girl looking to become a man is because her father is a influential member of the upper crust of society who's obviously ambitious. He has a career in politics. So what would be the things that made him good at that job 150 years ago versus now? And so that's that, that status system is always in place. It's just to what ends it is directed. And that was the, the point that I wish to make. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, I think I think we're getting at the same thing, which is uh, you're getting at, at a good point, which is like, yeah, the breadcrumbs lead you to a certain place, right? And, and uh, you know, somebody said this to me and it really like made a lot of sense, which is that all this trans shit is it's signaling it's it's like ways that the elites are one-upping each other at dinner parties in manhattan you know it's like and you really do see that like i i talk a lot about there's this one park in la and it's in east la where i live or you know i don't live in east la i live in nila northeast la so this is like where all the kind of intellectual types live in, in Los Angeles. And you wouldn't believe how many based people there are around here. It's like, it's actually unbelievable. Yeah, like if I you want to like I believe was in God SoCal exists. Not too long ago. And I was, I was surprised by that as well. Yeah. Um, so it's crazy. Like the, the, like people that I meet on Twitter, they always live like two blocks away from me. It's really, really weird. But anyway, there's this. Uh, so imagine, you know, the most hipster part of Brooklyn, right? That's basically Northeast LA. And it's even more so because LA is even is way cooler than New York because it's so weird. Um, and like everybody in New York is like a, a little more masculine, a little more try hard. Yeah. So LA uh, is is cooler. And oh, yeah. So there's this park here that um uh like it's a place where people go to signal their it's like all the parents are there right and they all have Mm. their kids and it's like a place where people kind of signal their like uh allegiances or or they don't signal their allegiances they signal their um their purity almost yeah they go to they signal their purity right so it's like there'll be a trans kid there and you know the parent will be shouting she 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 like her 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 you know and it's obviously not a a, a her right right in times where it's like very clearly not how you would dress someone but they want to be seen to be saying you know she right yes exactly or or uh there's like the dads all like really have to show that they're paying a lot of attention to the child. You know, like to me, you should go to the park, you should just leave your kids alone, they should play and that should be it, right? Whereas this is like the the dads all have to show how super involved they are, you know, with the kids at the same time. Um, yeah. I forget why this, what, what was this? Well, it was uh, in a broader context of uh, talking about you know, status signaling. And, you know, I, I was using the example of kind of an upper crust family in my state that had very prominently featured a trans daughter in a political ad. And the point oh, yeah. was, we were basically talking about how like that kind of social signaling is just, it, it's something humans do. It's kind of, you know, like built into us. It's just that currently the things that are high status are like very, very clearly deranged and bad for you. you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, right. And it's like, uh, yeah, yeah. So we're talking about how people get kind of 
uh, they they take this path of being one of these people, you know, they, that like uh, signals the right things. And I think that, you know, a smart human in the world doesn't concern themselves with morality and, you know, they don't concern themselves with uh, these things that everybody on the right concerns themselves with. And, and I think it's, it's like, um, this is why, yeah, of course, if we lived in a more right-wing society, which we have, you know, the society has been more right before in the world. I mean, I think if we look at the eighties and really the eighties, there was a long time there, really the eighties, even through the nineties. I mean, the nineties saw the the rise of rap and we saw the rise of, um, you know, kind of black culture in America really being the central force, the central export. Um, but it wasn't really left wing, you know, I mean, it's like, you don't think of NWA, which, you know, kids in Sweden started listening to NWA and really feeling what they were rapping about or Tupac or, or Biggie or Jay-Z even, you know, and, and the rise of Kanye. None of that stuff was left wing, really. Right. I mean, it's like it, it did all that. It didn't really become very uncool to be right wing until pretty recently. I mean, do you think that that's true? So I'm going to, I'm going to push back on, on kind of several things there, which is one, we have to kind of uh, put that term of left wing in right wing in its context, which it really only means something in the post French revolution world, right? Like is, is Caesar left wing like that, that, is Vercingetorix right wing? Those those terms don't really apply to them. But we look at the kind of central tenet of left versus right. You know, uh, in America, it's kind of poisoned by the the economic debate. And I'm not really interested in economics. It's what I studied in school, which is a, a very good way to no longer be interested in economics. But you know, our our political landscape has been set up on that axis. You know, as I mentioned, that's sort of because you know the right wing in America sprung from an opposition to FDR's treatment of the economy. Uh, but if you look at the core distinction between left and right wing, it's that idea of what matters more, hierarchy or equality. You know, and when you look at the kind of like the, the rallying cry of both our own founders in the French Revolution, obviously carried out, out to other ends, you know, you have that, that classic triarch of uh, liberty, fraternity, and uh, equality, right? And I think what we've seen over the last 200 years is that equality is sort of eating all of them. You know, that is the kind of like root value of the left wing. And so when you look at the 1980s, from a certain perspective, yes, it is a more right wing culture, certainly economically. There's also a sort of kind of chauvinism that was, was tactically allowed, right? But you also at the same time have the kind of like, you have like lethal weapons. You know, like we're all the same, man, you know, like let's link arms, you know, pump our, our muscles and go fight the Reds. And don't get me wrong. I think that that makes sense within context, but that is right wing graded on the scale of the 1960s and then maybe also the 2020s. 
But when compared to kind of a previous era before that, it, it, it doesn't necessarily compare as well. And if we're talking about cool to be right wing, I would also agree that that was sort of the last time at which there was a culturally respectable way to be a sort of Republican, right? Like you have like characters and media who are very clearly kind of right coded. Whereas now I think part of the reason there are so many sensitive young men in our circles is that there's just no way to be a right wing guy kind of out and proud in, in modern culture. Uh, but at the same time, we've got to remember that you know, if we look back even to the, you know, the 1930s, right, there was a brown scare, much like the red scare, where essentially this kind of like anti-fascist like mania swept the entire nation. I mean, there's a, it was connected also to anti-German sentiment, which is why you know, there are lots of places all across America that changed their name from something Berg to just you know, a normal American quote unquote name. Mm. Uh, but the really the religion of the civic religion, when I firmly have the belief that essentially every society has a civic religion, it's just maybe not formalized. Uh, of the Nuremberg regime, kind of post-FDR, is at its core anti-fascist. This is a, a thesis that Paul Gottfried has come up with, uh, anti-fascism, the career of a concept. It's quite good. It's a short 120-page book. But you see it very clearly in media, right? So, like, what are the, the, the like, top, like, 80s movies you think of? You'll think of, some people say, like, oh, like, you know, Indiana Jones, right? Okay, what is Indiana Jones about? It's about fighting Nazis, Right. Let's go back a little bit earlier. What's Star Wars about? Basically fighting space Nazis, you know? And it's because that is the moral justification for why America rules the world. It's because we defeated Satan on earth and inherited the world, right? That's our sort of justification. Even in the 1980s when something like Rocky, right? Let's take Cal Drago. What does he really look like, if we're being honest? Like a super tall, genetically engineered, blonde guy with blue eyes, right? Let's be honest, that sort of smacks of, right, the, the mid-century Germans. And so to me, when I say that being right-wing was made illegal in America, right, it's that there's, because, you know, the Nazis, and look, I'm not a Nazi, I'm not a national socialist, but they are sort of the satanic figure in our modern religion. Anything that sort of has that coding or has that smell to it, is, is sort of tainted by association and kind of put beyond the pale. And so to me, I think that you're certainly right that it was much more, it was much more culturally acceptable to be a American conservative, right? To be a, a Reagan voter. That's, that's sort of a different thing. Because even Reagan, right? Uh, Reagan made MLK, uh, MLK's birthday, a national holiday, right? Replaced uh, what would have been Lee Jackson Day in a number of uh, states. Uh, he allowed amnesty for illegal immigrants in California, which ended up flipping the state red to blue. Uh, he signed the Hughes Amendment. He did uh, any number of things which were essentially liberal policies, you know, not too long ago. And I'm not as harsh on, on Reagan as some others are, but this idea that he is kind of like the apex, like the apogee of what it means to be a right winger, I think speaks more to that same kind of canned limited perspective of the American conservative movement instead of the kind of a copus of, of right wing thought. So sorry, I, I went on like a 10 minute rant, but do you see what I'm getting at there? Yeah, yeah, I see what you're talking about for sure. Um, so, yeah, sorry, go ahead. 
No, no, not at all. Sorry, Karen. No, no, no. So yeah, when I say that, it's not to just be like, oh, you know, haha, I knew something you didn't, right? Because that kind of like one-upsmanship is, is dumb. But to say like, this is why I kind of target my content very specifically to red staters, right? To red state Americans, because I consider these people good people, but they're, they're horribly naive. You know, it's sort of like Charlie Brown in the football, you know, where they go up for it over and over and over again, you know, Lucy pulls it away and they land on their back. And I think that liberals and blue state Americans more broadly are much more canny about how status works and how power works, right? They're under none of the they're under none of the disillusions that, you know, kind of like civics class right-wingers are kind of operating under. And so to me, I think that, you know, I tend to get along, even though I'm, you know, someone from a conservative background, I tend to get along quite well with the, the, the liberal defectors, right? People from the kind of, you know, the, the, the capital cities of the empire. Because I think that that lends a better perspective, kind of defecting from, you know, behind enemy lines than look than from the outside looking in. And I think that you get a lot of this like kind of goofiness you see in conservative circles because they're talking about things they don't understand. They're talking about people they don't ever interact with. Yeah, I, I'm just shocked at how to me it all really came to a head, like understanding how weak the right is. You know, I, I was on the space the other day and uh, I was with Andrew Beck and um, like Nate Huckman and a few others. And a lot of people were kind of like coming at me. And um, because my point is always in the whole thing, like, look, we need to be better with uh, be, we need to be serious about propaganda. We need to, like, I get this, there's this kind of like essence I feel on the right. And this essence is, you know, either you're a total like troll, you know, you're like a troll in the South, uh, in which case you just are a right wing person naturally you hate being told what to do. You have this kind of American DNA essence running through you. And that's just never going to go away. You know what I mean? It's like uh, you go to West Texas, right? And you go to Midland, Texas, Mid Midland and Odessa. And Midland and Odessa are crazy because it's like there is no city there. <laughs> Like it's like it's like these are cities. These are like big cities that are probably pretty powerful. You know, they're the oil capitals in in many ways of the world, not just the country. But there's like nothing there, and it's weird that there's nothing. The reason there's nothing there is because everybody there is so libertarian minded that they don't believe in the cohesion of city living. You know, like they're so incredibly right wing just naturally as human beings that they, you know, they, they just aren't down for paying these taxes. They're not down for participating in the public project. Right. I mean, that's who ends up in West Texas is, is people who just have this certain mentality where the idea that you're going to try and tell them to do something or you're going to have to you know, give your money to this thing. They're, they're like, fuck you. Like they, they completely, it's anti to their character. But the thing about 
the, the reason why the right loses is because that mindset lends itself towards personal success. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, like that's those people are not concerned really with morals at all. They they don't care about public morals. They care about themselves. They care about their families. They care about what they're doing. And, you know, if you get them to come to them and say, hey, can you like, participate in in my project of bolstering right wing, uh, you know, whatever, they're going to be like, uh, yeah, no, thanks, bro. Like, I'm, I'm too busy doing other shit. And then on the other hand, you have these right wingists who are total nerds who are so completely allergic to um propagandizing they're they're allergic to marketing they're allergic to lawfare you know they're aller they love to bloviate but they hate to act whereas the left is so perfectly weaponized i you know i brought up Saul Alinsky earlier they they all have this hyper socialized way of understanding like, okay, my job is to forward this agenda and I'm going to get together with my fellow people and we're going to, we're going to forward this agenda together. And so the, the, the low people on in, in the left and the high people on the left are really well connected with each other. Whereas on the right, the best example of, there's been a couple examples of this I've seen recently. One is so what happened with Trump, right, with him being taken off the ballot in Colorado and Maine, he was taken off the ballot because he was called a insurrectionist. For some reason, the reason he was called an insurrectionist is because there's this clause in the, I think, the 14th Amendment that says an insurrectionist cannot run for office, Right. He was being late. Trump was being labeled an insurrectionist immediately after January 6th. No one on the right, people on the right said various things. Oh, you know, they're going to try and indict him. They're going to try and throw him in jail. They had all these very abstract black and white arguments about how he was going to be taken off the, the playing field. But I didn't hear anybody on the right saying specifically the reason he's being called an insurrectionist is so lawfare wise down the road, we can get him taken off the ballot unilaterally as an insurrectionist. It was such a good plan. It was so autistic. It was weaponized autism. They perfectly seeded this thing of calling him an insurrectionist. And then they paid it off two years later, three years later. And these lawsuits were public. We should have immediately, if if we had, if the right wing was anywhere near, remotely as near, organized as the left, we would have had, everyone would have known that that was the move they were going to make. We would have been talking about it for years. And what would we have done? We would have filed our own lawsuits against, you know, <laughs> for example, the people in Seattle that... Uh, wanted the Chaz Chop protest to happen. They were saying, oh, summer of love, like, or anytime Biden said, yeah, we we believe in, in protesting your government, blah, 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 right? We should have, if the right had money and was organized the way the left is, we would have had our own lawsuits running concurrently with those Trump lawsuits. But only now, after the ball has dropped, 
is the right all scrambling and being like, oh, we need to get Biden off the ballot in 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 Texas where he you know, the feds are supporting the invasion of people across the border, of illegal immigrants across the border. We're reacting to the left's much, much better planning and organization and and uh, and like maneuvering. Right. And like, I think that that's just such an example of how the right is just like built to lose. We're built to react to what the left is doing in a toothless way. So there, there are two things there that I want to get at, which is one, that phrase toothless, I like, because to me, the way I look at it is that the Republicans are not a, are not a symmetrical political organization to the Democrats, right? They're essentially a, uh, Moldbug calls them the outer party, right? They're, the game that they play is not necessarily to win. It's to collect, essentially, tribute from certain provinces and certain interest groups. So that's what. The other thing is that Bertrand de Juvenal has this model power I think is really interesting. Yeah, this and, is Bertrand de Ju- Juvenal. Ju- yes. Juvenile. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so I, I've i heard his name. I don't actually know too much about like what he stands for. Well, and Isaac, as is, is you've uh, no doubt become aware, I do not know how to spell it, or I would spell it for you live. <laughs> I'm a very poor uh, speller, but point is, and he has this conception, uh, which is basically abbreviated to high and low versus the middle. And he says that this is kind of a natural dynamic of how power plays out. Because if you're at the top of society, who is who is right behind you? Like who is ready to take your place? Well, it's the middle, right? So your natural alliance is not with the people directly under you, but it's with the people at the bottom. So you actually see this very clearly in medieval power. That you know, far from what you're told, the king and the peasants are allied together against the nobleman, right? Because the nobleman directly oppresses the peasants. The nobleman has the chance to replace the king. So what the king does is kind of weigh those two interests against each other. And what we see with that, that is very clearly displayed by the left wing, by the Democrats in America, right? A Democrat is both, you know, people living in LA who are very, very wealthy, right? You know, the elite people in Harvard Yard, and it's also, you know, the mother of eight, you know, in the, in Section 8 housing, right? Yeah. Those are the two of their, and obviously it isn't neat. There are plenty of middle-class Democrats. But because of that, that leaves that middle, the kind of middle class, to basically be the opposition. And if you look at MAGA, and I'm not a, a Trump guy, but MAGA is actually oh, a you're very, not a Trump guy. I'm not particular. Like, I don't have anything against him. I just don't vote as kind of a rule. Uh except for state and local stuff, but that's neither here nor there. Uh, but point is, right, if you look at MAGA as a movement, it tends to be, I mean, on the low end, factory workers, you know, who, I mean, factory workers are middle class, you know, even if they're, you know, electricians or something like that, they're not the true underclass of America or business owners, like the My Pillow guy, who don't get me wrong, are still wealthy men, but they're not Wall Street. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And so that's a structural problem. And, and you see this in Christian circles as well, right? Like the whole reason that evangelicals exist as a block is a historical event called the Great Betrayal or the Modernist Crisis, depending on what you want to call it. It's actually connected to the, uh, to the monkey trial. But essentially what happened is up until about 110, 100 years ago, the elite in America were incredibly religious Protestants, like incredibly religious. 
And then all of a sudden, they basically stopped being devoutly Bible believing religious, right? They yeah, became it's modern. Like, it's very true. It's like you you read the letters of, you know, I read John Adams, that book, which is really was really informative of like who these guys were. You know, they they were really the peak of philosophical understanding of religious understanding and they were devout i mean at least outwardly they were truly devout christians and they were hardcore intellectuals like you, you, have you ever seen what the chart on wikipedia of um the languages presidents speak no, but I, I feel like even if I don't know it, I know what it says. If you get what I mean, it's like starts with like five, and then it like goes down like slowly over time to like four, three, two, and then it's like George Bush one. <laughs> yeah, you know? that's generous. I think we're somewhere at like a point eight or something. Yeah. But anyway, sorry, carry on. <laughs> right. But so my point in bringing that up is that the there is really no right wing elite in the same way there is a left wing elite. Now I think that is changing because. You know, when you think of someone like uh, Peter Thiel or Eric Prince or Elon Musk, who, uh, don't get me wrong, I'm not saying those guys are our guys, they agree with us, but they have bones to pick with the regime, right? They can't do what they need to do, given the regime's commitments to, let's just say like DEI, to use kind of a, a current buzzword. Yep. So now we have a fraction within the regime that's basically saying like, well, look, like I'm limited. I'm this like top, you know, percent of a percent ultra wealthy competent powerful man and there's nothing for me right yeah i have to go look for friends and where do i find friends and so to me that's the most hopeful development because the worst thing is to have you know what we really saw which is you know what people call the post-war consensus which is basically from like world war ii to nears makes no difference like hw bush right bush one which is the fact that Basically, the elites are kind of locked arm in arm. Again, this is what you see at like during the global war on terror, right? You know, Obama has the same foreign policy that Bush does. You know, that this this faction is completely united. And so, you know, when we're talking about the nature of the right, I think that a lot of the things you're complaining about is because this is a group of middle people, is you know, the middle class. It is neither, you know, that elite at the top who have at least where I view kind of where all of the like impetus in politics comes from. It's essentially like a, a headless body. Yeah. And I think that, you know, as conditions worsen and as there's kind of less to go around, I think that there is a better chance for essentially our interest to be represented because again, right? Like the, the core function of politics is, as Schmidt tells us is to reward friends and, and punish enemies. And the problem is, we don't have very many friends and they're not very good at rewarding us. And we have very, very powerful enemies. And uh, yeah, that's, that's sort of the way I see it, but you're hundred percent right. As far as your diagnosis goes. Right. So um, I guess this leaves us with like what to do, you know, I mean, what, what, what does one do about this? I mean, it seems like, uh, I mean, how, why are you not, for example, a more normie right winger? Right. Why are you not attracted to Trump? Why are you not voting? I mean, you're just kind of just holding yourself out. I mean, I know you're a very young guy and I know that, you know, you're holding yourself out as kind of this rural guy who's talking to the fellow right wing people around you in that sort of world. 
So why not just be a, a MAGA, uh, you know, enthusiast? Well, to be honest, it's because it's actually because of Ted Kaczynski. <laughs> uh, so Ted Kaczynski has this great essay called The System's Greatest Trick. And what he basically describes is how there is within many, this. Where, where did, was, did he publish this in prison? He did. It was it was published uh, from Supermax. So you can still find it. I mean, obviously, you know, the publishing rights from uh, Supermax isn't exactly an easy thing to work out. So it's free to find. Uh, and what he describes is the sort of inside rebellion, right? The system approved rebellion. And what that rebellion serves to do is essentially make the system work better. Yeah. Uh, so he talks about the environmental movement. You know, he was obviously an ultra hardcore environmentalist, but he talks about the kind of reforms that essentially like Wells Fargo sponsored environmentalist groups get up to. And he's basically said like that is a completely and totally contained form of rebellion. You know, it, it is captured. And so its ends, its limited ends only serve to make the system more efficient. So I look at something like MAGA, right? And he really drilled Wait, down so to sorry, it. Say that one more time. So I can. The idea is that Kaczynski talks about the system's greatest trick is that it presents you like a blow off valve, like different opportunities to rebel against the system. But right, it I is remember a, I mean, this stuff was in um, this was in industrial society in its future, too. Like, yes. I remember him talking about the blow off valve. I remember that. And what he says is that there are there's a way to rebel which serves to make the system more efficient and better. Yeah. So I like the the phrase Moldbug uses of like a mimetic virus, like a mind virus. And when you think about it, you know, you talked about how that system of leftism is perfectly evolved, right? It has so many like advantages going its way because it really is like a virus. It has evolved to be this kind of like perfect predator. And I look at MAGA as to be honest, MAGA is a very liberal movement. Like Donald Trump doesn't, like he will, you know, stand in front of the gay pride flag, you know, holding up, it says gays for Trump. He likes lady MAGA. He wants that kind of, you know, like what I described in the 1980s of those two guys and the black guy and the white guy flexing their biceps, you know, putting their hands together. And that kind of, to me, the, again, the problem with that is that it's not real. It's not true. And I think that it won't work. Like, don't get me wrong. I like Trump a lot more than anyone else. And honestly, I probably will vote for him because I think it would be a funny statistical aberration to be the only person to vote exclusively for Trump in his third run. Like, that's just a funny idea to me. Yeah. But I, I do think that it's it's rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic. And I think that the problem we're facing is cultural and is civilizational. And so, like, just because of, you know, my kind of, like, deeply held beliefs. I'm not the kind of person who can make something worse, but to me, it, it's sort of, I don't, I don't see it mattering all that much. You know, I genuinely don't because I mean, we, we saw what happened when Trump was elected last time and don't get me wrong. There were certain things that happened that I think went well. I, I really do think that the lawfare has gone very well. I hope Chevron uh, deference gets overturned. That would be huge. Right. What's but, that? Uh, Chevron deference is actually it's basically how liberals got everything they wanted for the last 80 years. Uh, it's the idea that if an agency is a, an agency can basically make laws up if they are given broad, uh, like broad remit by Congress. So Congress doesn't have to write a law that says no, or this is not a good example that says like uh, your car has to have a backup camera in it, but 
the you know the government division that is charged with securing the highways basically says, well, that's within our control, so we can make a law that says that. So basically, it's saying that only the legislature, if this is overturned, only legislature can make law, which would overturn a massive amount of uh, progress that liberals have basically got through bureaucracy. Uh, that's currently the Supreme Court. Who knows what which, which way it'll go? But my point is to say, I'm not going to deny that Trump stacking the Supreme Court has measurably helped my life, and it seems like that trend is going to continue. Uh, so I'm not by any means being ungrateful, but to me, I, I, I honestly just think that the problems facing our civilization are much deeper than MAGA can fix. And if we got everything MAGA wanted, it, it would push us back up the slippery slope, but we just start sliding again. So that's my, my kind of broad picture on it. Uh, but the reason I don't consider myself like a Republican political activist is like, again, the, the kind of ideas I'm interested in, the kind of things I want to talk about are not friendly to Republicans. You know, they wouldn't like me. And I like red state Americans, I like conservative Americans, but I don't know. I've had my touch with with politics in kind of like the RNC form. And I, I've, I've had quite a fill of that. I'll put it that way. I, I didn't enjoy it. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it does seem to be completely lost. You know, I mean, it seems to be so totally rotten. And it, it really just makes you want, it, it's like, it really makes you wonder, man. It really makes you wonder, you know, like what, what are these people doing? I mean, I think it's, I do think it's a lot about boomerism. You know, I think, I think the boomer right winger is so afraid of racism. You know I mean? They, they really are. They're terrified of it. You know, they hate not, as you said, right. I mean, like they, they're, we reacted against what we call fascism, which actually isn't really accurate, but you know, like what we think of as fascism, which is like Nazism. Yeah, like America, we should be equally against that in, in a way as we are against communism. Maybe that's not true. Maybe I, I wanna retract that. I don't know if that's 100% correct what I just said, but, but, um. I think that the the people that are in charge of the right, it's yeah, it's just this kind of malformed thing, and it's confusing. This kind of go just goes back to what we're saying. Like, why are they so afraid of winning? You know, they're so afraid of doing anything that that actually has any teeth. It's it's very strange. It's very odd. So, what do you think people should do? I mean, that that's I think that that's a good way to finish up here. What what should people do? Yeah, sure. So the way I kind of look at postmodernity, as I've mentioned before, the the mind virus, is I view that postmodernity is a genetic bottleneck in much the same way that the Black Death was. You know, in in Europe, roughly thirty percent of genetic lines cease to exist, and what you see now is we're sort of going through a a similar similar population crash, right, where people are simply not continuing on. All of the the things that that mind virus is is making you do right. It's it's harming the host. It's preventing the you know from those lines from going on. And so I basically look at the challenge of postmodernity as making it through the bottleneck, right? Which is either essentially learning to resist that mind virus and making sure that you can kind of stop it from from replicating in in your life. And so it's why a lot of the people that I talk to are and don't get me wrong, I enjoy talking politics philosophy because that stuff's fun 
you know, it's my, like, this is my hobby. I enjoy doing it. Uh, but to me, that's kind of the, 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 I guess like the directive going forward is essentially making sure, you know, you, your culture, kind of whatever you can, you can salvage gets through that bottleneck because the, we're starting to see the chickens come home to roost in a way, you know, the conservatives have been crying for years saying, you know, like Richard M. Weaver said, ideas have consequences and they were right. But the problem is one, the effect is cumulative and it took a whole hell of a lot longer than we thought it would, you know? And so we have all of these decisions uh, about family formation, social formation, all of these things that we knew would cause problems sort of coming due at once. And so things are materially going to get worse, right? All of these, these actions have consequences. And so given that kind of like increasing tide of, of chaos, you know, kind of lower standards of living and this rampant mind virus kind of getting, getting through that is kind of my, my primary interest. And it's why I talk to a lot of people who like, you know, Nate Fisher from new foundings, who I'm trying to get on or, you know, guys in the kind of more like wealth management sphere who are basically saying like, look, like here's how we as a group of people who are not elites, right? How we kind of set ourselves up in such a position that it might not be us, but it could be our kids or grandkids who do essentially become, you know, an elite or become a kind of more insular society within a, you know, a, a decaying empire. And so, uh, yeah, that's kind of my, my, my mission more broadly. And it's part of the reason that I'm really well, tailoring. Well, I still my... don't really get it. What is the mission? I, I don't really understand. Oh, making it through the bottleneck, essentially okay, being how, part of. What, how do you do that? Like, how do you make it through the bottleneck? Okay. Well, I mean, basically just like on a biological level, like reproducing and having a culture that allows you to pass something on for more than just one generation. Right. right. Cause you see something like uh like humanist liberalism or something like that. You know, these like super IQ rationalist types that might work for one, you know, 130 IQ guy from Berkeley, you know, but one, how does that carry forward one, two generations, right? Does it, I don't believe it does. Those people yeah. don't tend to be particularly fecund. And so to me, it's basically like we're, we're kind of, we've broken multiple chains in a contiguous culture, right? We've sort of lost things. And, and it seems like those were, that wasn't just dead weight. Those were things we needed. And so I guess the process and the, and the project is kind of rebuilding culture, kind of rebuilding institutions to essentially help you, help you and yours get through that kind of bottleneck I'm talking about. And so that comes down to things like, okay, like how do you view yourself in relationship to your tradition? Okay, that's that's something that it may be a little bit autistic to actually think about, but that's something that you know, as as I'm sure you've you know, where you were talking about, you've read the, the the founders of America were very very conscious of their place in a tradition. You know, they consciously modeled themselves after the Greeks and the Romans, and we've sort of lost that. We sort of have to build it back, and I realize that's a little bit lerpy, but that's sort of the only way you can start to do something is by sort of playing pretend at it first. You know, it's I mean, it's the way children learn. And I guess we are, from a certain perspective, cultural children. You see what I'm getting at? Yeah, yeah. So pretty much you're saying just keep reproducing. <laughs> at the most biological level, yes. There's obviously more things that matter, you know, the, the kind of like surrounding uh, makeup of culture. But yes, pretty much. Because uh, that is not taken, that is no longer a given, you know. And at the very least, it's like, don't be a biological failure, I guess. Yeah, 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 yeah.
Right. Don't be a biological failure. So that's kind of like a natalism thing. Have you have you gotten into the natalism? So I'm friends with a, with those guys. Uh, yeah. You know, I've, I've talked to uh, you know Bennett's Flactory and a few people involved with that. Yeah. Uh, but I I didn't I didn't I wasn't able to go to the conference. I'm aware of it, but I'm not going to say that I'm you know the best representative of it. Yeah. So the natal. I mean, like the people that seem to be the best at this are like the Hasidic Jews and like the Mormons and the, you well, the know, Amish, like yeah, the, the Amish. Like these are the people who seem to really be doing this well. And and the, I mean, in a way, they're winning. I mean, they're they are winning. They're doing it well, and they are based. I mean, and right, like they are actually based. So that's a hopeful sign. Well, well, certainly. And I think that, you know, when I was talking about kind of, you know, building a, a more insular culture, I think that that is that is the way forward. You know, when you look at at other other countries that are kind of on the advanced slide into decline ahead of us. Right. You have places like Brazil and South Africa. And, you know, in South Africa, you have Orania, which is this sort of like Boer ethno state out in the desert. But in, in Brazil, they have something similar. I cannot remember what they call them. But uh, a friend of mine uh, spoke at a, at a conference in Nashville about this, where he basically says that they have this long tradition in Brazil. Actually, the Confederados is one. Uh, Confederates who, who fled after uh, the war between the states to Brazil and basically started their own parallel society in Brazil. And when you look at the Amish, right, it seems like building those type of, of more insular cultures, and obviously it's a nation project. I'm not saying like I have my place picked out in the woods. But kind of being able to rebuild, you know, or build your own social fabric, build your own kind of network. And I'm part of an organization that is that is attempting to do that, right? The old old glory club, which is sort of a oh, resurrecting so old glory club. Oh, I've been seeing that around. What, what I'm not, I'm not, I'm a uh, founding member, not a particularly active one. Uh, but they have spoken about that at length. That is a a sort of an attempt to do exactly what I've been talking about. I am not that organization. I'm a member of it, I should say. I see. Okay. Interesting. Yeah, it's it, the thing is we need this the thing that's sticky though. You know, I mean, and this is this is what the the Hasids offer to to the to the react the Hasids offer something to the reactionary young man, right? And this is something I know firsthand. Yeah, a lot of people think that Hasidic Jews are all people who come from that community. A lot of them are, but of I know a lot of Hasidic Jews that were secular, right? And then they found that because it was offering these young men a framework, one, to find a wife. But, you know, even beyond that, there's a spiritual tradition. There's, uh, you know, it's ethnic. There's an ethnic lineage. Um it's really offering people something extremely sticky, right? Because people, you know, people have natural inclinations. That people are hedonistic, but on the same time, people get hangovers, you know. And what do you do when you're hungover? You want to repent, you know. You want badly to go back to God, you know. That's a natural inclination, and actually, in Hasidic Judaism. Uh, there is no such thing as repentance. There's only return, meaning returning to God. So, you know, the, the left offers people, particularly in today's society, it offers them hedonism. It offers them a fake sense of justice. It offers them 
um, you know, a belief in Whig history moving towards the, you know, a fair world where everybody is treated equally. Um, it offers them a, a, a dream. It offers them a dream and it offers them a goal. And I think that when you look at Mormonism, when you look at Hasidic Judaism, when you look at uh, these more extreme religious sects, they're offering them the same thing. And I think that what the right, in my opinion, the way that the right wins this, and this is why I'm a Baptist, right, more so than a trad, is because if the right, and I've said this recently, but if the right can re, if the right can own like excellence, if the right, like Elon Musk, right, if the right can own beauty and striving and you know what we think of as americanism which is building your own thing by the strength of your will and you know the 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 work of your hands i think that that's sticky enough to to make people really become a part of us but right now we don't own that you know we do, we still don't own that we should and we should be working to own it but you go to the banks, you go hang out at Goldman Sachs, you go hang out with, you know, people at CAA here in L.A. These are people who believe in excellence. You know, they're American psychotypes. They're doing push-ups and, and uh, working 14 hours a day and, um, you know, manipulating and moving forward and everything like that. But they, as, as this conversation has all kind of gone back to, they still think of themselves as liberals, Right. Because and they think of conservatives as lame, wet blankets, whiners, you know, kind of milk toast Christians. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Oh, I do, and I think that that is it, it's sort of something that, for better or worse, the the kind of ideolo ideological the yeah, baggage of liberalism is just kind of ingrained into what we are as as the West. Right. That in the same way that liberalism is sort of an outgrowth of whatever, you know, a thousand years of English culture. Right. And so it's kind of difficult to say where one begins and one ends. I, I think you see a similar thing in America, right, where the liberals are always the cool guys, just kind of like it's kind of baked into the, the cake, you know. But the, the question is like, well, OK, like, are we the kind of like really annoying, like obnoxious, like David Hogg type liberals or are we the like giga racist Wilsonian invited the KKK to the White House kind, right? I don't, not a fan of either one of those, but I'm saying like that term is, is highly malleable. Uh, so as far as, as excellence, I think one of the things that you're, you're seeing is as, and we've, we've talked about the fact that, you know, the, it is not acceptable, quote unquote, to be right wing. You know, there's no way to be like if any one of those guys came out and said like I'm a you know a, a right wing Nietzschean, they would be getting a view a, a visit from HR, right? But what you're seeing is as that pressure continues, and especially for you know people my age and slightly younger, for whom entrance to kind of the the laptop class, the professional managerial class is barred to a certain degree, those people are getting pushed out and they are very upset about that. And so what's interesting is that I. I'm not going to put myself in this group, but there are multiple guys who I've met who are on their early twenties, who are extremely high performers, who are basically locked out, Like they're not able to do certain things because of that. 
And those people have an extraordinary amount of intelligence and extraordinary amount of essentially like anger and angst against the regime that they're basically devoting to attacking it. You know, this is something you've actually seen before, right? The liberals themselves kind of harnessed this. That if you look at like the 1848ers, right, the big set of uh, liberal uh, liberal revolutions that kind of swept Europe in, in 1848, a lot of the... What were those? I'm actually not familiar with that. Oh, so essentially there were a... And you'll have to look up a full list because it's been a while since I've gone into it. But in 1848, a large number of massive revolutions happened in Europe. There were a whole bunch of them. Uh, Marx actually lived through this. And then was incredibly disillusioned by the fact that it didn't really stick per se. Uh, but if you look at where those came from, a lot of them came from kind of like uh, second sons of either like nobility or the upper middle class, uh, kind of officers who couldn't catch a break, you know, those types. And I, I think that, you know, the, the more difficult it is for competent people to enter the elite people who yeah. are interested in excellence, yeah. Yeah. the more that type of counter elite I was talking about earlier builds up because yes. you have people who are like, I don't want to be a dissident. I shouldn't be a dissident. You right. know, I should be American psycho, but I'm yeah. not allowed to because yes. of, I won't sign the DEI statement. I won't get the jab. Like I know a guy well, who- they will. That's the thing. The, the, the thing is they will sign the DEI statement. They will get the jab. They will do those things. That's the thing. I mean, as as we learned, they absolutely will do those things. It's just beyond that, it's like, can we convince them that even still, even if you do do all those things, you're not going to be able to... I mean, this is what happened to the Soviet Union, right? I mean, the Soviet Union got eaten by the fact that you couldn't get anywhere. You couldn't get anything, you know, like you, 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 no matter how hard you tried, you didn't get what you wanted out of this system. So everybody just completely cheated the system. They spent their entire lives figuring out how to cheat the system. It's, I've been to Cuba. That's exactly how Cuba works. Cuba is everyone trying to cheat the system. That's, that is literally what Cuba is. It's a, it's a million people trying to figure out how to take advantage of the system and cheat it so that they can like move ahead a little bit, you know? Well, um. Certainly. And, and so that's one of those things yeah. that, you know, we talked about how a lot of the, the things that liberalism did in the past that enabled it to become very powerful sort of sealed its own doom. And a lot of the things, you know, you talk about that kind of like Texas extreme individualism, right? Which is sort of, it is related to the idea of like, you know, my body, my choice, I do what I want. Yeah. You know, there's sort of fruit of the same tree, but the problem is that requires a high trust society. Yeah. You know, that requires a place where you, you really don't need a police department on the next block because no one steals anything, right. you know, but all of a sudden, you know, when you're living in, you know, a shanty town, you know, very high crime, this kind of like, yes, yes. you, you, you have lost that high trust society and you kind of lose what you need to have nice liberalism. You know, you need judge dread. And so I do yeah. think that that is, that, that, that is coming back. I'll put it that way because it was a, it was a luxury and 
you know, much like many things, we didn't necessarily see the necessity of the things that we sacrificed until they were gone. Yeah. Uh, and so, yeah, that's, that's probably another part of it as well. Totally. Cool, man. Well, dude, thank you so much for joining. Um, yeah, this was really great. I'm excited to come on yours. Yeah, definitely. And yeah, dude, how's the lifting going? I think we're in like a lifting group together. Oh yeah, we are. It, it's going, it's going well. I am, uh, I was actually just getting interrogated on it by a right wings t-shirt company, literally asking me to post lifts, which is kind of a wild thing, but yeah, I, I'm, I've been lifting for a while. I was actually really quite heavy for a while. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, I, I dropped it like 70 pounds. So uh, that's kind of my, that's that's a while in the back. Like I probably dropped that weight like four or five years ago, but I don't know. I came to fitness relatively late. Like I'm not like one of those guys who was super athletic in high school. Uh, so I am, I want to say a novice. I'm not you know amazing at it, but it, it's something that I have n- absolutely no regrets about being uh, being involved in. So yeah, I, and I like JD. He's an he's an absolute animal. Like if you've ever you've ever seen what he does. I don't. I really don't know anything about him. He. I just posted that thing uh, of that I'm gonna have to take a shirtless pic, which is I'm <laughs> fucking terrified of doing this. But well, yeah, um, JD works, and I won't dox him, but he works as head of programming for a very very large fitness company you have heard of. Oh. Uh, and he's like six six like he he looks like cal like uh he looks like uh ivan drago from from uh what's it's called uh from rocky like he's a freak athlete and he's super smart so yeah we connected we had friends in common and he's he sponsors my channel as much as i get sponsors which is basically just means like he lets me be in his private chat and i read out ads for him so yeah he's a solid dude he knows what he's doing nice man that's cool well um cool man well th- thanks so much for joining and yeah stay in touch dude let's uh, yeah sure talk. thing and uh, i'll be in i'll be in touch about our episode let me know when this goes live i need to do a kind of uh roundup of all my outside appearances so I'll, I'll just post this out on my telegram and twitter when it uh when it goes live let me actually ask one thing i wanted to ask you before we go how did you because it seems like you really like grew very quickly you've only been doing this for like a year right uh, two years. I started uh, March of 22. Yeah. And now you're getting great numbers, like in a lot of places. What What was the key there? Like I literally you... for almost a year, I did four episodes a week. I just, I was just grinding and grinding and grinding. Uh, the other thing that I did. So here's the secret. I wasted way too much time on YouTube. YouTube is a dead end platform. I still use it because I built up some inertia. Uh, but essentially the secret with podcasting is consistency and just post same time like and people get like habituated to it and i really tried to do and actually i learned this because i'm friends with pete quinones who's much bigger than i am uh and i just like called him on the phone i was like all right man like i'd been doing it for a while you could tell i was serious i was like can you help me out and so this is where i got it all from and obviously he knows better than i would but he said obviously the consistency part and then also uh I'll just go on tons of shows. I do a ton of outside appearances and I'll do them. The other thing that I I figured out, this is really good for getting numbers is get someone who is outside of your circle, but related to it, because that is a group of people who are interested in the same things, but don't have a ton of crossover. So like in my case, I've been talking to a bunch of post libertarians. 
So people like like King Pilled, a guy named Buck Johnson, who were part of the libertarian movement for a long time and then stepped away uh, because of COVID, basically like, okay, this is horseshit. Like we need to do something else. And so that's a group of people who are thinking a lot of the same ideas that you and I are, but they don't ever talk. So look for opportunities like that. Uh, and then that's really my best advice. I'm a journeyman. Yeah, I mean, look, like uh, I just iterate and iterate and iterate until it uh, until I get something good is kind of my process. No, totally, man. I mean, I'm really a writer first. You know, mm. I, I I concentrate mostly on. I mean, I should concentrate mostly on the writing. That's like what really brings the people in. But yeah. I've been doing, you know, this is my, this is going to be like my 90th episode. So I've been doing this for a while. It's not new. And are, and are I, you on platforms other than Substack? I'm yeah, sorry, I don't, I'm I don't on, know. I mean, I put it on Apple. I put it on YouTube. I put All my right. episodes on YouTube, but I don't do anything on there. I, I just like post it and don't, I don't interact. I don't do, I'm not like on YouTube, you know, I'm not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, that's, that's, that's hard. Cause it's kind of like, I, I don't know. I'm not the best to do this. I kind of just. It's also helpful, like I, I will say, I got a huge bump from the Kashuta thing. Like yeah. that was a really big bump. There's no two ways about that. Uh, I'm trying to think. And then also I, I'm sort of friends with a academic agent who's got a big yeah. channel. He helps me out kind of early, but I, actually the real one is that, and sorry, I just realized this, but I have a, a rotating cast of recurring guests and a couple of them are pretty big names. Like I have Thomas 777 on roughly once a month. And he, because he doesn't put out much on his own, is a big draw. And so having someone come back and so you can build up a ton of rapport, like he and I have done like 12 or 15 episodes now. Uh, that helps because that's not only like someone people want to hear from, but you can build up a kind of like more like jovial conversation because you actually like become friends. And so that's a, that's another piece of advice. I, I'm sorry. I'm not the best like SEO oh, yeah. guy or anything like that, but that's, that's well off the top of my head what I got. No, it's fine. It's fine. Um, all right, man. Thank you so much for coming. All right. Sure thing. I'll be in touch.